0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Uh, well, this is the, the third week of uh, being in Matthew for a season, and this is the first of several discourse passages that we'll be looking at the beginning of um, the Sermon on the Mount. Today, of course, we're looking at the uh, well-known Beatitudes, uh, which begin the Sermon on the Mount, which goes across several chapters, actually. Uh, And we won't look at all of the Sermon on the Mount, but uh, some excerpts from it. And uh, just to give you a little sort of set the scene of uh, what's happening here when Jesus uh, begins the Sermon on the Mount. uh, Just prior to the sermon, we witness uh, Jesus calling uh, disciples who immediately follow him, uh, dropping everything to immediately uh, be his followers. Uh, He's teaching throughout the whole region of Galilee, we're told, and healing people of every disease and affliction. And this causes his fame uh, to spread throughout the region. And so people, uh, therefore, bring more and more sick people and demon-possessed people for him to heal. Uh, And people come from far and wide uh, to follow him and listen to what he has to say. And also, so far in chapters 1 through 4 of Matthew uh, we've learned a lot about uh, who Jesus Christ is, uh, what his identity is. Just listen to some of these um, these names that have been attached to him. He is the Messiah or the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Savior, Emmanuel, which means God with us, which harkens back to Isaiah the prophet, or the shepherd ruler from Micah chapter 5 that we saw last week. He's a Nazarene the baptizer by Holy Spirit and by fire, the Father's beloved and pleasing Son, and the light of the nations. It's, it's quite a resume, or quite the CV, and it's this one who would teach uh, the disciples who come to him as a crowd and gather around him. And think about that crowd coming from far and wide to listen to what he has to say. Finally, teaching uh, to a large audience, explaining all that he's doing and why. Later in Matthew's gospel, when commenting on the crowds, and you hear this in in Mark's gospel too, uh, Matthew says, when he saw, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Indeed, this is uh, something that comes across uh, in these passages uh, and from what he's, uh, in the passages about um, healing and and casting out the demons, that sentiment comes across as compassion on the crowds. And this comes out also in what he's about to say in his Beatitudes, that compassion, that he is both uh, benevolent and compassionate, comes across clearly in the Beatitudes. Uh, and as I said last week, Matthew's uh, gospel is uh, emphatic about the identity of Jesus Christ as king, as, you know, capital K, king of the universe, king above all kings. And so thank God we have both a benevolent and compassionate king in uh, the Son of God. You know, because it, it it could go other ways. But in him, uh, thank God, we have compassion and benevolence. And so let's walk through uh, the Beatitudes quickly, uh, shall we? I mean, it's uh, you could spend a long time sort of um, uh, expositing it, but I just want to kind of walk through it quickly to, to see broadly what's happening here. You can follow along in, in the bulletin. Um, there are three sections in the Beatitudes themselves, at least that I see, um, and uh, they go like this. There's uh, verses uh, 2 through 5, which uh, you could call these the sort of passive or... Um, suffering categories of the people that he describes. These are people who are in need of mercy. They're the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek. So verses 2 through 5, you see the first category of three, which are the the sufferers, um, those who need mercy. And then in verses 6 through 9, you could call these the sort of active, whereas the ones before were the passive here we have the active, or you could almost call it the sort of the activists, the active category of people who are blessed. Um, these are uh, people who are seeking justice, presumably for those who are just above in verses 2 through 5. <clears throat> those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful. Remember that the, those before needed mercy, and these are the merciful. Uh, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. And finally, in verses 10 through 11, uh, these are the, those who are obviously persecuted. It's repeated twice, persecution. Persecuted for what? Specifically uh, for the public witness that they bear to Jesus Christ and also for their trust and faith in him. Um, there's this sort of counterintuitive feel to the people that uh, Jesus highlights and the Beatitudes, the sufferers, the activists, and the persecuted. These are not your, um, you know, as the bumper sticker says, too blessed to be stressed, or hashtag too blessed to be stressed, right? I mean, Beatitudes is about blessing. These are not your too blessed to be stressed. Rather, they're blessed in their stress. These are people who are actually blessed in their stress. This is the opposite of what the bumper sticker is saying, right? Um, these, are, these are people who are finding their blessing in the stress of life and the pain and the hurt. These are the, the ones that, above all else, Jesus gives the promises to and the blessings to. And this is uh, really interesting if you consider just a few things. It's, the uh, first of all, the sufferers, activists, and persecuted who often ask uh, where God is. It's often those who are suffering, who are activists for causes, and those who are feeling persecuted in the midst of that stress, that pain, when it's really hard, we'll say, where is God? Just like the Psalms ask. Uh, these are the ones who often question his love and his sovereignty in the midst of the pain. When things get really bad, we often ask, why and how is this happening? Oh, God, if you're out there. But Jesus Christ goes right there. He goes right there when he's talking about the Beatitudes, uh, where the problem of God questions are. That's what it's called when um, people question the idea of God amidst all the pain and suffering and wrongdoing and misery and catastrophe in the world. That's called the problem of God. Jesus goes right there with the Beatitudes. And he doesn't give a, a theodicy, which is a sort of philosophical explanation of how you can reconcile the omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God, all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful, with hurt in the world. He doesn't, he doesn't even give an explanation, reconciling these things. Rather, he says blessings on them and promises them heaven and earth and everything else on that list— I mean, just consider uh, Job's counselors. Remember the book of Job, his friends, who try to explain away Job's suffering? At the end, we learn that God was uh, there the whole time, alongside Job, blessing him the whole time, in the midst of his suffering, blessed in the stress. Not too blessed to be stressed, but blessed in the stress was Job. Uh, in the midst of all that distress, he finds out in the end that God was there and blesses him at the end of the book. There are people you know who are like those described in the Beatitudes. Um, you know, Maybe you're one of them, but there are people in your life... Uh, Who you know in in many ways who are like those being described in the Beatitudes, and it might not be uh, who you most sort of easily and stereotypically imagine when thinking of something like the poor, the poor in spirit. They might be your wife, or your son, or your estranged brother, or your domineering boss, your anal retentive next door neighbor in your gated community or the lady you avoid in the office, or maybe it's that couple who seem to have everything together, their house is pristine, and they have the right cars and the right clothes, and their children are well-behaved. It might actually be them who are uh, the poor in spirit that we're talking about here, or the ones who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Perhaps there is uh, someone downright unbearable uh, in your life, in your eyes, and yet Jesus Christ is pronouncing his promise and blessing on them. Just consider some uh, personages from the gospel that Jesus encountered. I mean, these are just a few examples. Consider Nicodemus, the Pharisee, a Pharisee who came to Jesus in secret. And then if you read all of John's gospel, you find out that he became one of Christ's disciples and was there at the burial. Or consider Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, uh, who has Jesus over for dinner and then repents and returns all the money that he's collected or stolen from the people. Or consider the author of our gospel, uh, Matthew, Levi, formerly Levi, the tax collector, who Jesus goes up to the tax collector. I mean, in those days, they were seen as basically robbers for the Roman Empire he goes to such a man and says, "Follow me," and changes his name from Levi to Matthew. And that's the guy reading the book that we're writing, the book that we're reading tonight. And they were all, in some way, poor in spirit. Yet a part of them hungered for righteousness, and they would indeed become persecuted. I just watched the the new, um, I guess it's relatively new, live-action version of Beauty and the Beast. Um, it was the only thing good on Netflix, um, streaming, um, with my daughters. We do Friday movie night, and the DVD hadn't come yet. So I was looking for something, and Beauty and the Beast was there. You know the story. If you haven't, I mean, it's actually worth watching. Um, the uh, story of Belle, Beauty, the young woman um, whose father is trapped uh, at this castle in the wilderness outside of their town in France, and sort of provincial I don't know, 1800s France. And there's a and nobody knows about this castle where this beast lives. And he captures her father, and she rescues him and exchanges places with him. And she's now captive of the beast. And meanwhile, back in the little town, there's this guy named Gaston who's in love with Belle, and yet she doesn't want anything to do with him because he's so obnoxious. And yet he's handsome and strong, uh, a, a, a war hero, and people look up to him and admire him, and uh, nobody believes the father that this beast is out there until finally Belle comes back to the town, and she, meanwhile she's kind of fallen in love with the beast, her her uh, the guy who's kept her prisoner, and he's fallen in love with her. But she's gone back because the whole town thinks that her father's insane. And she goes back to say he's not insane and there's evidence of the beast and the whole town gets pitchforks and flames and torches to go kill the beast, led by Gaston. And the most poignant lines of the film come right there when she goes back to the town. And she's trying to explain the whole thing. And she says to the townspeople, don't be afraid, he's gentle and kind. And then Gaston uh, the man that I described, the leader of the pack, says the monster has her under his spell if i didn 't know better i 'd say she even cared for him and then Bell about the beast says he 's not a monster Gaston you are the beast wouldn 't hurt anyone and so you see it turns out that the beast was a quote unquote beast because he was never loved until that point the sort of he was The the spell was cast on him because he was unloving, an unloving prince, but he was unloving because no one had ever loved him. He had a terrible upbringing, and he was a beast because he was never loved. His poverty of spirit made him a beast, and he was desperately in need of mercy. Meanwhile, Gaston, the strong, the admirable, the handsome, the type of person that we idolize in our society, isn't he, you know, ends up receiving in the end the poetic justice. It's the unexpected turn of events. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness get this. My seven-year-old daughter, when watching this, when Gaston falls from the the bridge that breaks under him to his doom, his death, goes, yes! that he was the one who in the end would die and not the beast. Um, She got it. She was hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And stories like that touch that place deep down inside of us that even a seven-year-old gets it. The placement of the uh, Beatitudes uh, is interesting for two reasons. First of all, they come prior to the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Much of what's to come in the Sermon on the Mount is giving of law, obligation, duty, instruction. In other words, the promises of the Beatitudes come before the obligation, not the other way around. I mean, you would think in a conditional world that the, the promises would come after the obligation. You know, if you do this, then, right? That's the way we work. And it's true, the Sermon on the Mount is helpful for instruction. I mean, it's helpful to read and get something out of it for the Christian life, but the law is inevitably impossible for us to fulfill 100%. So, lest we become like the Pharisees who demand absolute perfection or expect that it's possible, I should say, we must always circle back. We must always circle back to the Beatitudes. Or another way to put it is that we can. We may circle back to the Beatitudes when we feel like we just can't do this. It's too much for us. Thank God that the Beatitudes were the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The blessings and promises come before the burden, just as Noah and Abraham came before Moses. And here's the second interesting point about the placement of the, the Beatitudes, is they come right before the salt and the light. Right before the saying about the salt and the light, it's these people, the sufferers, the activists, and the persecuted, that Jesus calls the salt and the light of the world. In other words, they are the uh, sort of preservative for a decaying humanity. It's them who are the illumination for those who are still in the darkness. It turns out the sort of quote-unquote beasts of the world are the salt the and the light, not because of anything they do by their own ability, but because of the blessings and mercy Jesus Christ has pronounced upon them. That is because the beasts have been loved. The beasts have been uh, set free. There are many ways you are probably like the people in Jesus's list of the blessed. Maybe you're poor in spirit. Like the tax collector praying next to the Pharisee at the temple, you can't even lift your eyes to heaven, and instead you beat your breasts, saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Or maybe you mourn, not over a death per se, but over your own sinfulness and evil, and over the fallenness of all of humanity in general. Or maybe uh, you are one of the meek, seeing your need for humility and submission to God. Yet you live in a world that scorns humility and submission. We want Gaston and not the beast. We want Barabbas and not Jesus. And this is all too clear to you, perhaps. Maybe you want God to do something about all this. You seek the peace that only God can give to liberate us uh, from spiritual enslavement. Meanwhile, maybe you're uh, taking it on the chin all the stinking time, you know? I mean, life is full of chaos and hurt to begin with. And if that's not bad enough, genuine Christian witness makes you look strange and unpopular in this world. So how are you a sufferer or an activist for what is truly righteous or the persecuted? Some of you have uh, heard me Say in passing that my first year after I was ordained, after seminary, was uh, uh, served the church for one year. It was uh, sheer agony, the experience uh, right after seminary. I was in the. It just so happened, and you know, looking back uh, in retrospect, it was by God's providence. But in the midst of it, it didn't feel that way. But I was in the wrong place at the wrong time for a whole variety of reasons that I won't bore you with. Meanwhile, you know, I had just finished seminary. I was still learning the ropes of being ordained. I was trying to figure out how to do funerals and weddings and you know, like how to put on silly vestments and things like that. And all that was going on around me in this environment was chaotic uh, to the extreme. And I wasn't entirely innocent of what was going on, but it was just a really bad situation. And I wasn't alone. I was uh, able to survive that year and move on because of God's love to me, mediated by my wife, Holly. I wouldn't have been able to make it any other way. She reminded me throughout it all of the promises and blessings of God day by day. I needed to hear that on the lips of someone else who actually believed it. And she stood by me the whole time. I mean, we didn't even know if we were going to continue having a living, and we had two young children. Meanwhile, I was a wreck at best and an unlovable beast at worst, and yet she still loved me and pronounced God's blessings through that all. Please know that uh, even if you feel like the world, like I did that year, is falling apart around you, or that uh, the, the causes that you might be fighting for seem doomed, or that you are experiencing injustice yourself because of your witness to Jesus Christ, that you are blessed in spite of all that, or because of it, you are blessed. and You're probably exactly where you need to be, even if it doesn't feel like it. Because God is there too. He's right there in your pain. He finds you in the suffering. His office is right there don't seek a, a mere explanation. Rather, accept his promises and that they are for you. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.